0: Reach, freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence
1: and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised.
2: What happens when the people who are entrusted to serve and protect inadvertently destroy and let bias guide their actions down an irrevocably dark path to murder. This time, an invisible choir.
3: Do you have any ill
4: feelings toward African Americans?
5: I, I do, sir. Okay. I'm an off duty officer. I thought it was in my apartment, and I shot a guy thinking that he was thinking it was my apartment. saw someone Yes, I thought it was my apartment. I'm
1: fucked. I don't know if this is possible, but can can I give her a hug, please?
2: We're going into some rather dark, tragic territory with this episode and our intent is not to in any way dismiss or devalue the incredible work men and women perform in law enforcement every single day. This story examines the few who let bias, discriminatory feelings and sometimes outright hatred creep into their lives and ultimately their duty to protect. We'll examine what happens when the criminal justice system becomes the criminal injustice system and when the assumed safety and sanctity of the home is tragically taken away by those we're supposed to trust. Oppression. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines the term as an unjust or cruel exercise of authority or power. But that word today elicits a deeply divided and often hostile response when brought up. But why? We've all heard the stories of the, quote, bootstrap mentality. The general premise being that if we work hard, treat people well, and continue working towards advancing our own futures, we can be anything. We can literally become anyone. But some are just as quick to say that this idea or this belief doesn't and might never work for certain subsets of the U.S. population by design. That they don't even, quote, have a pair of boots to begin with the general idea involves a deeper concept called equity, that in a perfect world, we're all given the same access to opportunity or the same access to succeed regardless of whatever background you come from. For decades, there have been mass uprisings challenging the idea that such equity exists in the United States, especially with regard to how some historically marginalized populations of color are sometimes treated by police. Hey, what's
6: up, how's it going? Hey, how you doing? Good. Hey, um, I'm stopping you because you got no front plate in your window Tent's too dark. Uh, I actually got to fix a ticket for this one. Did you? Uh, it was two weeks ago. I got stopped on Arden right there by a hostess. You rolled down that window. For
0: oh, thank you. So you got a you got
6: a ticket for the, the tent already? Yeah. Okay. And Little I car. did. I did. Hey, Little how you doing? Roll uh. All the way down. Do I got to? Because I just told you to. No, I'm saying I got it right. I cab that up. For my safety. And for my way safety way. also. This is all being audio recorded, by the way, too. Okay, that's fine, right here, too.
2: Okay. A young Hispanic man who goes by the name Flexenru online uploads a video of himself being pulled over by a male and female officer to YouTube. They alert him that his window tint is in violation of safety standards and that he is missing a front license plate, two issues he already received a fix-it ticket for when pulled over just two weeks before.
6: Okay, so you gotta fix it ticket for the window tint. I got a uh, fixed stick for that, too, also. And the front blade? And, which is not due until, uh, I don't know, I got to take that down. Somewhere. Okay, all right. You you the driver's license to fix it. Yeah, it's my backpack in the back. Okay, here, I'll just take it in for a second. Right.
2: The man is recording the interaction on his cell phone, which sits safely mounted to the dash. He keeps both hands high on the wheel so the officers can see them. The situation quickly escalates from here when he alerts the female officer that he has a properly licensed firearm in the vehicle. Any weapons in the vehicle?
6: Uh, yeah. This is a registered firearm in my name. Okay. Yeah, Smith and Weston. This is also, you know, got the business under my name too, so. Just go ahead and keep
0: your hands on the steering wheel. Yeah.
6: For me. Okay, All right, sir. Hey. Yeah. Just because you got a firearm in the car, okay, we're just going to do this the safe way, okay? So, what I need you to do, can you undo your seatbelt for me? Uh, can I call the supervisor, please. What? I would like your well, supervisor. No, you can talk to him afterwards, sir. I would like your supervisor okay, We're gonna to talk to him afterwards. Right? And that, I need. To do well, what can I you call him, you him on your radio? Huh? Can you call him on your radio? He's hey. not trying to call hey. his supervisor on the radio. It's, I'm just, we're, we're Okay, tired. I'm a citizen too, bro. Okay. It's like, hey. and, you, and you work for public and safety. You, you're doing your hey. job. What's hey. your what's hey. your cause? Hey. Of, what's hey. your, calm, your cause? Calm down, calm down. What's your cause of stopping me? Is what I want to know. You didn't even give me it, a cause. You said for your tent. I told you I got that ticket. Cause to pull you over, right? Okay. Whoa, whoa. That's way whoa.
2: After a brief exchange, the female officer draws her weapon and aims it directly into the man's head and neck, Then they securely remove him from the vehicle and search it. Are you serious? your fingers
6: on the back of your head. We've got code coming. Whoa. Okay. Your seatbelt with your right hand. Oh, wow. Hey, it's all good. I don't know. It's all Lean good. towards the seat.
2: a situation every single person listening to this podcast right now has likely seen similar video of. A young non-white person being pulled over, and things quickly taking a turn for the worse, ultimately leading to an arrest, or for some, even worse. Thankfully, this man was peacefully removed from his vehicle, and nobody was hurt. But after the search, he was arrested and charged with illegally transporting a firearm. When officers searched his trunk, They found a handgun stored in a firearm case with the magazine still inserted, which is an illegal offense. But the charges were later dismissed and rightfully so because the officers did not possess enough probable cause or evidence indicating the man was involved in any sort of criminal activity. It's the new version of the chicken or the egg game. And it's videos like these that are forcing a lot of people to critically ask the question, which came first? The discovery of illegal behavior or the illegal search that facilitated its discovery. Every citizen in this country has certain unalienable rights, including the Fourth Amendment right to remain free from unreasonable search and seizure, And not everyone can afford an attorney to fight unlawful charges. Now, we included this video for a particular reason, to upset you, the listener. A vast majority of the people watching these types of scenarios unfold, regardless of how they end, are very quick to ask questions shouldn't have raised his voice. Well, he sounded confrontational. Why do you need your windows tinted anyway? Why not store your firearm legally? It's basic firearm safety. Why didn't this guy even have a front license plate? He was warned two weeks ago and still didn't fix the issue? He looked suspicious. What did he have to hide? Why not exit the vehicle and let them search? The tint their, Instructed their Instructed view. They did what they had. Instructed they needed to establish a safe list. The list goes on and on. These are very natural questions people raise any time they see these types of police interactions gone awry. Anytime time an individual behind the badge decides to draw their firearm, but regardless of the circumstances or the people involved, one near absolute truth remains. All of our actions and decisions are guided by subtle, more implicit biases, or the subtle clues and assumptions we make that directly influence our decisions and actions, and most of us aren't even aware they exist. Any one of us at any time are exposed to some 10 to 11 million bits of stimuli in any regular environment. While the human brain is only capable of consciously processing 40 to 50 bits at a time, we learn very quickly as evolved species to unconsciously process and act upon these biases, or cognitive shortcuts if you will. And while most serve some beneficial purpose or aid in human survival, Others are informed by hatred, gross generalizations, or outright misinformation, and can create ill-informed actions with sometimes devastating consequences, because there's a razor-thin line between implicit bias and situational awareness. And police officers are often caught right square in the middle, and are forced to make difficult decisions in the span of microseconds, and sometimes, as human beings, they make the wrong choice. Deep in the heart of Texas is the booming metropolis that is Dallas. With a population of almost 1.5 million, it has been called one of the top five most diverse cities in America. Due to its ever-growing population, the city itself is left constantly rebuilding and evolving. On the south side of downtown Dallas lies the Southside Flats, a beautiful four-story apartment complex described on its website as bringing a new vibe to the quote, up-and-coming district called the Cedars. Looking at the photos provided, it's no surprise that the newer generation would flock to such a lovely place. But as beautiful as the building is, it holds a dark, dark secret. On the evening of September 6th, 2018, Dallas Police Officer Amber Geiger clocked out of work for the night and began heading towards her apartment at the Southside Flats. After working a 14-hour shift, including assisting on a robbery sting, until close to 10pm that evening, she pulled her vehicle into the parking garage at the upscale complex. She pulled onto the fourth floor, grabbed a few items from her car, and then walked inside the building. She proceeded to apartment 1478 and placed the items she was carrying on the ground while she fumbled with her keys, trying to unlock the door. After gaining entry to the apartment, Amber noticed the television was already on, and saw a black man in his underwear eating ice cream. Immediately, she believed the man to be an intruder and drew her service weapon, firing twice and hitting the man once in the torso. After neutralizing the perceived threat, Amber turned on the lights and looked deeper into her loft. But she quickly realized she was in the wrong apartment altogether and that she had just made a tragic mistake. She slowly backed out into the hallway and dialed 911. Get up,
5: man. Yeah, this is Carla. What's your emergency? Um, hi, this is an um, off-duty officer. Um, can I get, I need emails. Um, uh, I'm in, number. What's um, okay. Do you need police uh-huh. as well or just EMS? Yes, I need both. Okay, what's the address? I'm at apartment number 1478. I'm in 1478. And what's the yes, address there? Um, it's 1210 South Lamar, 1210. 1478. Yes. Yeah. What's I missed, going on? I missed, I'm an off-duty officer. I thought it was in my apartment, and I shot a guy thinking that he was thinking it was my apartment. He shot was, someone? Yes, I thought it was my apartment, I'm fucked, oh my god, I'm sorry. Okay, and the, where Where are you at right now? I'm in, um, what do you mean? I'm inside the apartment with him, hey, come on. What's here. your name? I'm Amber Geiger, I need to get me, I'm, I'm in. <laughs> okay, we have Hop on the way. I know, but uh-huh. I'm, I'm gonna lose my job. <laughs>
2: Geiger's reaction is partly understandable. Clearly, she's in a heightened state of panic and borderline shock, but it's her comments near the end of the call that first tipped police off to the idea that she may not be quite so concerned with the fact that she just mortally wounded someone in their own apartment, but that she mistakenly entered the home of someone else, and it just so happened to be a young black man. She whispered in disbelief, I'm fucked, and I'm going to lose my job. Words that were forever captured on that call, and that would later come back to haunt her. But there was another witness just across the hall that evening, one who claimed to have heard the situation unfold in real time. 27-year-old Joshua Brown had heard the surprise meeting, as he called it, and the gunfire that immediately followed. Brown had been watching the Atlanta Falcons play the Philadelphia Eagles in the 2018 NFL season opener as the altercation played out across the hall from his apartment. It was a significant event for neighbor Brown, one he was unlikely to forget, because as a former college football player, he had personal friends who were playing for both professional teams that evening. After hearing the gunfire, Joshua walked to his door and looked out the peephole and saw Amber already on the phone, likely on the call with dispatch he watched as she disappeared back into his neighbor's apartment.
1: She was crying, uh, explaining what happened, what she thought happened, saying she came into the wrong apartment, and
2: uh, that was about it. Shortly after the incident occurred, Dallas police officers arrived on scene as well as emergency services personnel who transferred the victim to Baylor University Medical Center in Dallas, where he was later pronounced dead from his injuries. Police identified the victim as 26-year-old Botham Shem Jean, a successful accountant who worked at PricewaterhouseCoopers, one of the, quote, big four global auditing firms of the world. But who exactly was Botham Jean? He wasn't a thug reaching for a weapon, and he wasn't obstructing justice or fleeing from police. He was a man sitting on his own couch, relaxing after a long day at work, enjoying a bowl of ice cream. He didn't fit the convenient profile of a, quote, threat, as so many others have so easily been categorized in the past during an officer-involved shooting. Some claimed at best he represented a simple silhouette to Officer Geiger. Others felt she acted on impulse upon seeing a black man in her apartment and assumed in those initial seconds that he must have broken in and that she acted in defense of what she believed was her home at the time. In 1991, Botham Jean was born in Castries, St. Lucia, an island in the eastern part of the Caribbean. As the middle child of the family, Botham found himself drawn to the church, wanting to dedicate his life to Christ. At just eight years old, Botham knew he was destined to join the church and first requested to be baptized. It's a story his mother has told over and over again.
7: Botham was about eight years old and he requested baptism. His dad said, no, you're too young. Do you know exactly what you're doing? So he came back at nine. And he said, dad, I want to be baptized. And his dad said, do you know what you're doing? The third time when Botham came, I think it was a year later, Botham said, Dad, I want to be baptized. I want to be a Christian. He went to my mom and the same way he did. No one forced him. Botham knew what he wanted.
2: The passion Botham felt for religion carried on with him into his teenage years when he began preaching and eventually took it upon himself to teach his mother's church choir how to sing. According to his mother Allison, Botham saw more potential in the church choir congregation and helped them by teaching the choir how to read sheet music and arranged them all by their vocal ranges. His love for the church and the community within it knew no end. After high school, Botham wanted to attend college but also wanted to remain committed to his love for Christ. So he found a university that would allow him to do both. And while Allison hoped her son would attend a school in the West Indies not far from home, Botham was set on Harding University, a private Christian school in Arkansas, which he was accepted into in 2011. For Botham's mother, father, and siblings, his university of choice separated the family by a nearly eight-hour flight. Throughout the years, while he was attending school, Botham would still make time to visit home in St. Lucia, sometimes bringing friends from school with him to show them where he grew up. He would often volunteer during his visits, giving back to the very community that raised him. During the 2014 school year, Botham ran for student advisory president at Harding University, uploading a clip explaining his stance to his personal YouTube channel. He created a clever slogan for his campaign called The Best of Botham Worlds. He was set on making the world a better place, especially for his peers and fellow students at Harding University. He believed in creating a place where students could engage in meaningful dialogue, a place where everyone's voices could be heard.
3: My whole platform has been to to initiate a forum where students can talk freely and can express their views freely and in a positive way. And I think this whole concept of opening doors of communication between faculty and students, I think that is gonna have a significant impact on all students, on campus because they can now express what they feel and we can use that to to develop plans and initiatives which are going to affect their lives um, but at the end of the day i really think that is it has as much of an impact as you make it out to me
6: so there's three other candidates running for sa president what makes you
2: the most qualified
3: yeah what sets you apart from the others i think my ability to unify and to motivate and to encourage others plus my ability to to just be a good listener i think that will develop a working relationship within the essay that's just going to allow us to just get on fire um, for the student body and and to just take initiatives and to set goals plus I also think that I have the ability to manage tasks well and to complete them effectively, and I think that's unparalleled, really. And I believe that it will lend significantly to accomplishing the goals which the essay sets out. In
2: 2016, after graduating with a bachelor's degree from Harding University, both of them accepted a job from PricewaterhouseCoopers and moved to Dallas to begin his new life as a young professional. He even found a new church, Dallas West Church of Christ, where his passion for singing and worshiping came to life every single Sunday. Both of them sang at Dallas West Church of Christ every Sunday moving forward until his tragic death. In the moments immediately following the shooting, the officers first on scene captured Officer Geiger's reaction and the gruesome scene that lay before her on their body cams. Footage from Dallas Police Officer Michael Lee shows both him and his partner running up the stairs and through the hallways until they locate a frantic Amber Geiger calling out to them, directing them inside to a tragic scene. One of the officers kneels down to examine Botham, who is lying on the floor on his back, eyes wide open, staring blankly at the ceiling. He asks Amber where she shot him, and she can be heard calling out on the top left. The officer rolls Botham's body towards himself, revealing a large pool of blood on the floor. He begins frantically performing CPR while Amber paces nervously in and out of the apartment. The two responding officers trade turns doing chest compressions until paramedics arrive. A surveillance video from the apartment complex also shows Amber pacing back and forth, eventually heading downstairs to wait in a squad car until EMS arrives on scene. Moments later, they can be seen rolling Botham Jean through the entry doors and towards the ambulance, a member of the EMS team performing CPR the entire way. The video then shows Geiger getting out of the police car, hugging other responding officers, who in turn provide her comfort. News quickly began spreading of the incident and Dallas residents had questions. How could this possibly happen to a young black man sitting on his own couch, eating a bowl of his own ice cream in his own home? They were furious and they were demanding answers.
8: I wanna first start by offering my condolences to the Botham Shim, Jean family. We want to be, and we will be, as transparent in this investigation as we can be. And that is why we have called this news conference today.
2: On the morning of September 7th, Dallas Police Chief Renee Hall announced the incident was no longer being investigated as an officer-involved shooting, and that she was going to be seeking a warrant for Amber Geiger's arrest.
8: give you the details that we have and what we know so far and to clear up any inconsistencies that have already been reported. Last night a female Dallas police officer returned to what she believed to be her apartment after her shift had ended. She was still in uniform when she encountered Mr. Jean in the apartment. It's not clear what interaction was between them her and the victim but at some point she fired her weapon striking the victim therefore we have ceased handling it under our normal officer-involved shooting protocol a blood sample was drawn to test the officer's level for drugs or alcohol and at my request we are in the process of obtaining a warrant based on the circumstances that we have right now.
2: Amber was immediately placed on administrative leave, and the Texas Rangers were called in to conduct an independent investigation. According to Texas Ranger David Armstrong, lead investigator on the case, over 297 residents of the Southside Flats were interviewed. Many had claimed that they themselves had at one point or another either walked to the wrong apartment and inserted their electronic key into the wrong door or parked on the wrong level leading directly into the complex. Each floor in the building closely resembles the ones above and below it. So for some, the layout is extremely confusing. On September 8th, Texas Rangers then interviewed Amber Geiger. While Chief Hall already stated she would be pursuing an arrest warrant, she notified the media that one wouldn't be signed by a judge until after Amber's interview had taken place. Ultimately, she was charged with manslaughter and was asked to turn herself in, which she agreed to do on Sunday, September 9th. She was able to post her bond and walked free until she was eventually put before a jury. But Dallas County District Attorney Faith Johnson stated that the incident would still go before a grand jury to decide if Amber Geiger would ultimately face additional charges in court.
0: Uh, when we met with the uh, Texas Ranger, we had a full um, the, uh, spirited conversation with the Texas Rangers on yesterday. They were able to come meet with us for almost two hours, gave us a briefing of the case, also updated us on the case. After that conversation, they made it very clear to us that they were going to issue a warrant for manslaughter Uh, and although we had a spirited debate we also gave them our uh, opinions and we also gave them our 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 insight into it but remember the texas rangers uh is that organization that a law enforcement agency that was responsible for the investigation of the case although they are investigating still investigating now We are doing a thorough investigation, we're continuing our investigation, and the grand jury will be that entity that will make the final decision in terms of the charges, charge our charges that will uh, will come out of this case.
2: On the same day that District Attorney Johnson stood in front of the media, the arrest warrant for Amber Geiger was made publicly available and provided additional details from the evening of September 6th when Botham Jean was gunned down in his own apartment. The Texas Rangers' interview with Amber Geiger revealed that after getting off work that evening, she accidentally drove up to the fourth floor of the parking structure, each floor of the ramp correlating specifically with the apartment numbering and floors of the apartment complex itself. Amber lived in apartment 1378, directly beneath Botham Jean's. Her claim was that when she arrived at number 1478, she inserted her electronic key and was able to gain entry into the apartment though it's likely the apartment door was already ajar and Amber simply wasn't paying attention. Nonetheless, upon walking inside, she described seeing a shadowy figure approaching her, the silhouette allegedly yelling out in an aggressive tone while she issued verbal commands to see his hands before firing two shots in quick succession. It seemed the entire situation was likely a tragic accident brought on by exhaustion and a general lacking awareness on Geiger's part. But could Amber have really been so exhausted from a long shift that she walked into the wrong apartment? Or was she so preoccupied with other thoughts that she simply wasn't paying attention? Most importantly, does any of that really even matter? On the one hand, it seems completely rational to want to defend your home and your valuables, but on the other, there are other ways to ensure a safe resolution without anyone having to die. She could have backed out of the apartment, phoned 911, called for help. She could have deployed the non-lethal taser on her duty belt all of these other options available at her disposal. And as a police officer, Amber should have known that. Discharging her service weapon at a private residence while off the clock, killing someone because she simply wasn't paying attention, demonstrated extreme negligence, and the authorities proclaimed that she would be held accountable for her actions and receive no special privileges along the way.
9: Calling all true crime fans, murderinos, crime junkies, and wine coven members. Have you listened to Murder in the Rain yet?
8: Murder in the Rain is a true crime podcast based in the Pacific Northwest, focused on the local cases that make us the notorious home of bizarre crimes and serial killers. I'm your host, Alicia Holland. And I'm your host, Emily Rowney.
5: (laughs) I'm Josh. (laughs) I forgot. I forgot. I was...
8: In each episode, we will cover
9: a case to bring you all the details of the crime. We often feature interviews with people close to the cases, including authors,
8: victims, doctors, and detectives. Most content is dark and not suitable for young or sensitive listeners, but we do try to lighten the mood by providing a blooper reel at the end of every single episode. Trust me, you'll love it. Check us out today, and if you like us, don't forget to subscribe, follow us on social media, and leave us a review. Our website, murderintherain.com, has additional content, podcast feeds, discount codes to some of our sponsors, and an interactive map with locations for each episode.
2: September 13th, a week after Botham Jean's death, his funeral was held at the Greenville Avenue Church of Christ in Richardson, Texas. That same day, the list of items collected at his apartment during the course of the investigation were publicly released. Investigators found 10 grams of marijuana and a marijuana grinder inside of his apartment. Many people, including members of the Jean family, believed the police were attempting to smear Botham's name as a way to drop the charges and justify some rationale for his death. Nearly two months later a grand jury was convened to review the circumstances surrounding the shooting and on November 30th 2018 they indicted Amber Geiger on the charge of murder. Again, Amber surrendered herself into custody and quickly posted a $200,000 bond. She had already been terminated from her position with the Dallas police after community leaders called for action and accountability in the case. One year later on September 23rd 2019 A jury had been selected and Amber Geiger's trial began. As the first week was underway, heavy emphasis was put on the first responders from that evening, such as Officer Michael Lee, who was seen running to the scene and performing CPR on the body cam footage, as well as testimony from emergency services personnel. The prosecution repeatedly pressed one simple question. Why hadn't Officer Geiger administered emergency aid to Jean after shooting him, as she had been so thoroughly trained to do? As the trial moved into the second week, the prosecution revealed a bombshell that was likely going to shock the public as well as members of the jury. Apparently, Amber Geiger had been having an intimate relationship with her partner, Officer Martin Rivera, and just minutes before she pulled into the parking ramp at the Southside Flats, Geiger had been engaged in a sexually charged text message conversation with Martin, fully contradicting her earlier claims that she was completely exhausted and heading home to bed after a long shift. The content of the messages demonstrated otherwise. In fact, it appeared she had plans that extended well into the evening. It was the beginning of the end of the naive illusion that Botham Jean's death was simply a tragic accident. The progression of text messages captured between Geiger and Rivera was telling. When can I come over?
5: You can come over after this. Super horny today, too. Me, too. Do you want to touch?
2: Geiger and Rivera seem to have actually been planning a sexual rendezvous that night until things went terribly wrong. I fucked up. The prosecution claimed that Geiger's last text message to Rivera, that she, quote, fucked up, demonstrated a seeming lack of empathy and compassion for the man she had just fatally shot because though she claimed not to have been able to render first aid or CPR to Jean while he lay on his living room floor bleeding to death, she stepped aside to text her lover one last time. With the exposure of the newly revealed text messages, the emphasis shifted to Amber's relationship with her fellow officer, Martin Rivera, whose background came under intense scrutiny as he too became a target of the public eye. In 2007, Martin was called to a 7-Eleven convenience store in regards to a candy bar theft and general disturbance. When he arrived, 20-year-old Brandon Washington refused to cooperate and had placed his hand in his pocket. After the young man had done so, Officer Rivera drew his service weapon and fired shots killing Brandon on the scene. With his peripheral involvement in the Geiger case, community activists began calling on the Dallas Police Department to terminate Martin as well as the Dallas District Attorney's Office to file charges against the officer. They were alleging that both officers exhibited a documentable history of prejudice against African Americans which may have explained Geiger's seemingly nonsensical actions immediately following the shooting.
8: The lawyers call him her rock and her mentor. We now know that he's more than that. He's her mentor, her rock, her partner, and her lover. And he covered for her. And he's a little bit more than that. He's a killer. In March of 2007, this same police officer, Martin Rivera, killed Antoinette's son, 20-year-old Brandon Washington.
9: Trials like this are extremely important because they lift the blue veil and show us what is happening in the police department. The fact that Martin Rivera has spent 16 years defying policies, mistreating people, lying, escalating to murder, and being rewarded for it is a crime within itself.
2: The case of one officer shooting one unarmed man in his own home suddenly expanded to include a much deeper analysis of her and Officer Rivera's relationship and the fact that the prosecution also discovered other, more damning text messages between the two that suggested they both exhibited racial bias towards African-American people, including their own co-workers who were black. During the Martin Luther King Jr. Day parade in 2018, Amber and many of her colleagues had been working the streets. Many of them there were in a group message chat when one officer asked, When does this end, LOL? To which Amber replied,
5: When MLK is dead. Oh wait.
2: Prosecutors also found other text messages from a few months later, in March of 2018, between Geiger and Rivera, when Rivera texted Amber, appearing to mock some of their colleagues who were black. Damn, I was at this area with five different black officers. Not racist, but damn. Amber wrote back.
5: Not racist, but just have a different way of working, and it shows.
2: In another text message exchange, a friend of Geiger's had offered to give her a German Shepherd, at which point the man said the dog might be racist. Amber replied back
5: I wish I could have one but not in this apartment smaller than my old one
2: at first glance it appeared amber brushed off the quote racist comment that is until she replied
5: it's okay I'm the same
2: part of the prosecution came from the testimony of Dr. Chester Gwynn, the medical examiner who had conducted Botham's autopsy, the results of which showed that Botham was likely bent over or on his back when he was struck with the bullet. But Amber's defense team claimed the only reason she discharged her weapon was because she had seen a shadowy figure coming towards her. Unfortunately for their claims, Dr. Gwynn's report differed significantly, showing that Botham was incapacitated, and at the very least, that his position at the time of the shooting represented little or no threat whatsoever. The most important testimony of the trial, though, came from Botham's former neighbor, Joshua Brown. He was the one who had been closest to the incident, after all, and when it came time to testify, he laid out exactly what he could remember.
9: You heard what sounded like commotion or surprise, correct? Yes, yes ma'am. Okay. Um, and it said that you heard
1: voices um, that were kind of in awe. Like. Two voices mixing together at the same time, so that I couldn't make out, a, you know, make out what either one of them was saying. Uh,
9: do you recall uh, ever hearing someone say, "Hey, put your hands up" in no. a loud tone?
1: No, no, ma'am.
9: Or show me your hands?
1: No, ma'am.
9: Or giving any type of those other commands that you would hear police say on
2: TV? No, ma'am. For as close as he had been to the shooting, he heard nothing come before the shots, only the chaos that had ensued immediately after. Had Amber gone just one more door down, he would have been on the receiving end of what happened that evening. But for Joshua, he knew that both imposed no threat. He only knew his neighbor as a gentle soul who loved to sing gospel songs every morning.
1: Heard him singing every morning. Okay,
9: you heard him singing. Uh, What kind of things did you hear him sing?
1: uh gospel music uh drake
9: and your door is directly across the hall from where mr john's apartment was correct yes ma'am and So so <coughs> the morning, were you inside of your apartment when you heard mr john singing or outside of your apartment
1: uh i'll probably hear him when i come out lock my door i hear him okay
9: so from in the hallway you can hear his activities inside his apartment mm-hmm. yes you have to say it out loud i'm sorry
2: Joshua lowered his head at the stand at one point during his testimony, becoming emotional because he knew what his fate could have been, but also reflecting upon the memory of his neighbor who did nothing wrong. Since the shooting, Brown had moved out of state to California and expressed his concerns to prosecutors about returning to Texas to testify because he had been shot and wounded outside of a Dallas bar before moving away and he feared the perpetrators would come looking for him once they realized he was back in town. After providing critical testimony demonstrating it was unlikely that Geiger shouted commands to Jean before pulling the trigger that night, it was Amber's turn to explain what happened from her perspective when she mistakenly entered apartment number 1478.
6: When you pull up your weapon at night, and you fire, why did you fire? <sighs>
2: Regardless of the remorse that Amber Geiger appeared to show on the stand, and no matter how many times she explained how her mistake inadvertently turned deadly for Botham Jean, it wouldn't be enough to save her from being held accountable for her reckless and negligent actions. On October 1st, 2019, after the jury deliberated, Judge Tammy Kemp read the verdict.
4: We, the jury, unanimously find the defendant, Amber Geiger, guilty of murder as charged in the indictment.
2: Botham Jean's mother raised her arms high in the air after the announcement, and observers in the chambers and in the hallways outside cheered aloud. The following day, on October 2nd, Amber Geiger was set to hear her final judgment.
4: Mr. Rogers and Ms. Geiger, would you please stand? The jury having reached a verdict, I will now uh, announce it. We the jury find unanimous. We the jury find unanimously that the defendant did not cause the death of Botham John while under the immediate influence of sudden passion arising from an adequate cause, and assess the defendant's punishment at 10 years' imprisonment in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice.
2: After Amber was given her sentence, Judge Tammy Kemp allowed Botham's younger brother, Brant, an opportunity to speak directly to the defendant.
1: I don't want to say twice or for the hundredth time what you've or how much you've taken from us. I think you know that, but I just, I hope you go to God with all what, all the guilt, all the things, the bad things you may have done in the past, each and every one of us. May have done something that we're not supposed to do. If you truly are sorry, I know. I can speak for myself. I, I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask Him, He will forgive you.
2: Brandt continued by telling Amber that he believed both of them would have forgiven her as well. And while he didn't care what anyone else thought. It was the young man's choice alone to forgive her. In a video that has now gone viral, Brandt asked the judge if he could give Amber a hug before they cart her off to prison.
1: I don't know if this is possible, but can can I give her a hug, please? Please?
4: Yes.
2: In an action that caused additional questions and controversy, Judge Tammy Kem came down from the bench and gave Amber a hug and provided her with a Bible. It seemed the entire court was overcome with the spirit of forgiveness in the midst of this great tragedy.
4: She will forever be the murderer of Botham John. How she carries that thus forward depends on how we receive her. And as a Christian, I believe I'm commanded to offer her love and compassion
2: on october 4th just two days after amber geiger's trial had concluded one of the prosecution's key witnesses was back in the news joshua brown the former neighbor of botham Jean, who provided key testimony to the chaotic sounds heard immediately after the shooting was gunned down in the parking ramp of the Atera complex his new home in Dallas, just five miles from the Southside Flats where he and Botham once lived. The man who expressed concerns over his own safety before testifying in the trial was killed in cold blood just ten days after he sat on the stand. And though many questions remain, police have made public evidence that he was allegedly involved in a drug deal gone bad. But others aren't so sure. Many believe the timing of his murder is far too convenient and the fact that he seemingly foreshadowed his own death prior to testifying as many believing other, more powerful parties are possibly to blame for his murder. Community activists have called for the FBI to convene an independent investigation into his death. The shooting death of Botham Jean was marred by endless questions and controversy, from the very beginning of former Dallas Police Officer Amber Geiger's mistaken trip to the fourth floor of the South Side Flats to the many signs she missed along the way. The subtle signs warning her of the pending altercation that would forever change many lives. The bright red floor mat outside of Botham's apartment. Nothing like her own. The smell of marijuana inside of his home. Nothing like her own. The decoration and layout inside of Botham Jean's loft. Again, nothing like her own. Yet there she stood on the edge of darkness, faced with a great decision, a decision she ultimately made that turned out to be horribly wrong. And though we may never know what role prejudice or bias may or may not have played in Botham's death, Amber Geiger took a life. An innocent man died, likely believing that his home was being broken into, that the silhouette who stood at his door meant him great harm and the Jean family's generous showing of empathy and compassion and the forgiveness exhibited by the family in the courtroom and on the stand was nothing like Amber Geiger's own. She stood frozen, concerned in the moments immediately following the shooting only about herself and her job, while an innocent man lay dying on the floor in front of her in apartment 1478. We did it. We made it through another week. If you can't get enough Invisible Choir, consider signing up for Invisible Choir Premium on Patreon. The link is in the show notes. Right now, for just 16 cents per day, you get immediate access to over 20 additional premium episodes and other content. And if you join our special confidential informant support level on Patreon, you'll get a special limited edition Invisible Choir enamel pin in the mail and access to our new exclusive show, Invisible Choir Uncensored where we cover cases and topics that are far too graphic for the regular free show. We're releasing a terrifying new uncensored episode on the McKamey Manor just in time for Halloween, so sign up today. Please also consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thank you all for your continued support, for sharing us on social media, and for listening.